Welcome to the first episode of Talking Games with Reggie and Harold. As Harold and I spoke about creating this podcast, we decided to produce a series to help entertain and inform game fans during a very difficult time for this country's history. As the former president of Nintendo of America, I'll tell you some untold stories of my life and taking names and making games, but we really do have a more serious goal. That's right, Reggie. I'm Harold Goldberg, the founder of the New York Video Game Critics Circle. In addition to entertaining you, this seven-part podcast is a fundraiser for the New York Video Game Critics Circle and its work with underserved youth in New York City, especially homeless students. So we'll be telling you more about our nonprofit during the course of this premiere episode. And please go to nygamecritics.com slash Reggie and donate now. You can make a difference in someone's life right now. Reggie, in a moment we will talk about your beginnings in the world of games. But first, how are you holding up during this time of COVID-19? You know, like everyone else, you know, I'm holding up best as I can. The crisis really started quite close to my home here in the Pacific Northwest. The situation with a family center in Kirkland, Washington is quite close to my home. So, you know, I was thrust into this situation, you know, early on, while many of my friends and business associates from former lives, you know, for them, COVID-19 felt like something far away. But, you know, we're dealing with it best we can. You know, my immediate family, touch wood, has not been affected by this, but many friends and extended family has. So what people don't understand is, you know, we're all looking to make the best that we can in this very difficult situation. My heart goes out to people who have been more directly affected. But, you know, for me, it's been a challenge, but not one that hasn't been uh, able to be overcome. No, it's it's the same here in New York, Reggie. I mean, we are doing the best we can. And here in, in my building, we had a good friend who is a longtime World of Warcraft player who got it. And it was a touch and go for a while. And one of the uh, musicians who've played at our New York Game Awards came down with it and just, I mean, he's a big, strong guy and he really was felt. He said he'd never dealt with anything like it before. So I think the only thing we can do is just keep on going and, you know, hope for the best. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's amazing. I have so much family in the New York metropolitan area and the, and the New York area has been hit so hard. You know, my nephew had the virus. Luckily, young man and knocked him on his feet, but he was able to recover. I have a a second cousin who, you know, was during my life much more like an aunt who unfortunately succumbed to the virus. So, you know, this is the real deal. And so watching our leaders manage through this has been critical. It has been. We'll switch gears now and... uh talk about entertainment a bit and everyone wants to hear you talk about Nintendo. So what was the process of being hired by Mr. Iwata? You know, what's interesting is that when I was hired into Nintendo of America, my direct boss was actually Tatsumi Kimishima. So Mr. Kimishima went on to be global president after uh, Mr. Iwata had passed away. It was a series of interviews and conversations. And, you know, fortunately, you know, the, the team at Nintendo of America liked what they heard and I progressed through the process. But it's interesting, you know, after I was already on board with Nintendo, I heard that actually I had almost messed up the process because after I had been given an offer 
But before I had accepted the role, I asked to speak to Mr. Iwata via video conference. And I asked to do that because I was being hired to run sales and marketing, a very important job, not only for the Americas, but really globally. The hope would be that I would become a key entity for the company from a messaging standpoint. And I needed to feel comfortable with where the company was going. You know, and again, people don't realize 2002, 2003, you know, Nintendo was facing some challenges. PlayStation 2 was by far the market leader in the gaming business. Microsoft had launched their first Xbox and Xbox and Nintendo's GameCube were about the same size. And so while the handheld business was dominated by Game Boy Advance and, and Nintendo was driving that part of the business on the home console side, you know, things were challenging. Plus, I believe it was in 2002 or maybe even 2003 when Sony had first announced that they were introducing their own handheld device. And all they did was mention that it would be called the PlayStation Portable, but Nintendo's stock price took a, a huge hit just with that news. And so it was a challenging time. And I wanted to make sure that from a direction standpoint where Mr. Wada was looking to tape the company was something that I could align behind. So I asked to speak with him, which disrupted the interviewing process. But I ended up having a scheduled half hour video conference with Mr. Wada that ended up lasting much longer than that. And it really was the foundation of the great business and personal relationship that I was able to enjoy with Mr. Iwata. It was the foundation for you know many of the things that he and I would work on together and drive. And so it puts a smile on my face to realize that on one hand, how I almost screwed up my own hiring into Nintendo, but on the positive side, it really laid the foundation of what was a fantastic friendship, mentorship, and personal relationship. It also included many trips to Japan. And I wondered if you could go back and tell us what it was like for fans of the country to set foot on the shores for the first time and uh, walk around and have your, your, your initial meetings there. I had done a lot of international travel even before I was hired by Nintendo. My travel from an Asian standpoint had been largely parts of China, Korea. It was actually my first time visiting Japan. You know, Nintendo is headquartered in Kyoto. Kyoto is the old emperor's capital. You know, I, I just can't describe how beautiful the city of Kyoto is with the temples and the shrines and all of this fantastic history. And my first trip there, I briefly was able to spend a little bit of time beginning my learning of the city and engagement with the city. You know, it was a lot of time invested there in the Kyoto headquarters, spending time with key executives, you know, learning how Nintendo thought about the business. I was fortunate that I had played Nintendo games and I knew the intellectual property. I had my own favorite games at the time, but getting to really understand Nintendo's philosophy and how they viewed business, how they viewed game development, it was this fantastic training for me. So it was, you know, certainly like a kid in a candy store, spending time in the headquarters, spending time in Kyoto. I have to say it wasn't during my first trips. It was after that infamous E3 in 2004, but I would always get a kick being in Kyoto, having, you know, some of the, uh, the locals looking at me and pointing at me and I could hear whispering spring of Reggie. I couldn't understand anything else they're saying because they'd be speaking Japanese, but then I'd hear Reggie, which was, uh, which is an interesting phenomenon. That is great. Well, 
you know, since you mentioned it, can you talk about that first appearance on stage? And, you know, the, prior to that, there was a cr- actual marketing creation of the Reggie persona, right? There, there was some talk about how that you would be presented to the public. Well, all of this needs to be put in perspective. Anyone who goes back and looks at the E3 presentations of you know, the year 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, there was a need to communicate to the Western community what Nintendo was doing how we were looking to do things differently, not only from what we had done in the past, but what everyone else was doing in the gaming industry. And again, as I I said earlier, I was hired in part because I had communication experience, had public speaking experience. And so, you know, from the day I was hired in early December of 2003, everything was building momentum to my first E3 in May. And so not only getting smart on the content that we would launch, but it was honing the message and and honing how we would deliver the message. In collaboration with myself, there's a gentleman by the name of Don Varyu. Don was truly my partner in creating content and messaging, but he and I worked together to drive the messaging along with other people. Perrin Kaplan, another longtime name from Nintendo's history, George Harrison. This was a team effort in crafting crafting what the messaging would be. But when Don, you know, first shared with me that infamous line, I needed to be convinced that it would be the right line because I knew I would have to be the one to convince Mr. Iwata. And so we debated and talked about it and challenged it. And in the end, you know, we crafted not only a set of lines, but also the video content that aligned to it, which was intended to really reshape the message and to reshape the direction of where we were going. And we were confident because we had the goods to back it up. We were launching the Nintendo DS, showing that for the very first time. We were showing gameplay footage of what would become The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. So we had the goods to back it up. But it was a very thoughtful process in what it was that we were looking to do. And I know you have background in speaking and the like, but what were those moments like before you first went on stage. It was crazy. You know, people didn't know me. This really was my coming out party. And we were doing the event in a ballroom. We had roughly, roughly 2,000 people in this ballroom. And I was literally standing off to the side watching this ballroom fill because I wanted to have a sense of the energy and I wanted to have the adrenaline ramping up as I would go on stage and deliver these lines. And what was so funny, this is one of those, you know, inside stories. So I'm there in a two-piece suit with a black t-shirt underneath, you know, standing, looking out onto the crowd. And we had various staff running around doing things and everyone had to be badged. They needed to have ID that showed that they were allowed to be where they were. So I'm standing there gazing out to the crowd and there was a a member of the staff that came close to me and I turned and looked at them and literally they just stopped rigid and he starts fumbling for his ID. And he's like, you know, he's showing me his ID. It's like, you know, it's okay for me to be here. This guy thought that I was the security guard. So, so imagine what's going through his brain when the conference starts and the lights go up and he sees me 
I mean, he must be saying to himself, what's going on with Nintendo that they've got the security guard giving the presentation? You know, what is this? So, you know, true story of that first E3, you know, what was going on, <laughs> some of the uh, the humorous moments, but it, it was a moment. You know, it's a moment that certainly helped define me and helped define the company. And you describe it so well, almost almost as if it uh, were yesterday. It's uh, You do paint a, a great picture of it. One of the other questions I had before we go into the next segment is you had the pleasure of meeting the legendary Shigeru Miyamoto and having a relationship with him over the years. Can you tell me about that a bit? Sure. You know, so I'll describe my first meeting with Mr. Miyamoto. It was very early in my tenure, within my just a few weeks of me coming on board. I was making a trip with another senior executive, a gentleman by the name of Don James. Don is legendary at Nintendo. I think he's employee number three or number four, you know, continues to be an employee in Nintendo, and he runs our operations team. Historically, he had responsibility for developing the trade show activity for Nintendo. So Don and I make a trip to Japan one of the things that we were doing was to see an early prototype of Nintendo DS and some of the content. And when I say an early prototype, I mean, literally, it was circuits on a motherboard with a couple screens, <laughs> you know, showing software as it's running and the hardware developers and software developers describing for us what this product would be. Don had not seen it yet. Obviously, it was my first time. Imagine we're in a meeting with all of these people and Don had introduced me and we get started. They're doing this demo. They're showing some content. They're asking our opinion and our perspective. And one of the things that they were showing was a very early prototype of what would become Nintendogs. Mm. And it would really be one of the first games that made dramatic use of the touchscreen. Classic game. Yeah, classic game. So I, I remember they turned to me, right? The new guy, the new head of sales and marketing guy, you know, we, we need his opinion. And I remember making a comment about the touchscreen and how this would truly be the first consumer electronics mass market device that would utilize a touchscreen. This was well before iPhone ever existed. Touchscreens were only being used for some high-end PDAs, personal digital assistants that people were using. This would be the first mass market touchscreen device. And I made a comment about how we would need to leverage that, communicate that, and that this game would be a key way for us to drive that message. And I remember a presence at my shoulder, and it was Mr. Miyamoto. He had come into the room after the meeting had started and he was standing next to me. I didn't know it when I was making my comment. Now I've made my comment and I turn toward this presence and it's Mr. Miyamoto and literally my knees start to shake, right? Because I, I knew who Mr. Miyamoto was. I'd never met him before. And now he starts speaking Japanese. <laughs> And now they're beginning to translate this. And he says, you know, that is a very good comment. That's that's very perceptive. Yes, we're going to need to make sure we leverage the touchscreen. And this game is going to be a great way to do it. And oh, by the way, who is this person? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they go on to introduce me and we shake hands. That was my first introduction, my first meeting with Mr. Miyamoto. He snuck up on me. He heard me make a comment and luckily he uh, he agreed with it. So I guess I got off to the right foot. Uh, you definitely did. Uh, so we'll fast forward a bit and ask, why did you join the New York Video Game Critics Circle? Video games, you know, even though I'm not 
employed in this industry, I guess now maybe tangentially as a board member for GameStop. But, you know, video games have been a passion for me. I played with my kids. I was a player and a fan long before I became an employee. And I was aware of the fantastic work the circle was doing, using video games to engage with young people, to help them with their writing skills, their creative thinking skills. You know, the fact that the work is being done largely in the Bronx where I was born and spent the first eight years of my life. For me, it was a fantastic opportunity to leverage my passion, leverage what I've done for almost half my life and to use it as a way to now give back to the community through the power of gaming, through the power of what the circle does. To me, it was just a tremendous opportunity. And oh, by the way, Harold, you did a good job twisting my arm as well. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a team effort, actually. It was suggested by everyone from our interns in the Bronx to people in the circle that you need to ask Reggie, so, so I did. I'm just thrilled to be part of the circle. You know, I think this is a good opportunity to help the listener understand what is the mission of the circle? What is the work that the circle does? Reggie, the mission evolved over time. I formed the circle about 10 years ago to advocate for writers who were being given short shrift by game companies who are primarily on the West Coast. You know, we wanted it to be multicultural. So our first meeting at the Rivington Hotel lobby began with Evan Narsis, who was then at Kotaku, Tracy John, then at MTV News, and Rush Rushtick, who was also at MTV, and uh, Andrew Yoon, then a PSP fanboy. Dan Ackerman from CNET and Libby Ackerman from AOL Games joined shortly thereafter. Fast forward, the mission changed when Catherine Soros now part of our board of directors, asked me to go up to the Dreamyard Prep School in the Bronx to help a student write a college essay. And the Dreamyard is in the poorest congressional district in the United States. And that young person was from Africa, and he said he felt like an outcast. And, and that was in a school full of outcasts. So as we worked on his essay, he asked, if I go to college, will I still be an outcast? And I was really moved. I was moved because I've always felt like an outcast myself. And we were poor when my father left and I had two chronic illnesses as a young person, still do. So I said to the young man, it gets better. It, it tend, in college, you tend to find your people and they're like-minded people. So I suggest that you continue applying and going on. Yeah, that's a, that's a powerful story. It's a powerful statement in terms of helping young people find their like-minded people. It changed me. And after meeting that young man, I came back to Circle Membership, which by that time had grown to over 30 people. And I, I said, we have a collective 300 years of game industry knowledge and we know writing and I think we can help. So I proposed that we teach an after-school course in the Bronx. And we had awesome, caring educators helping us and on our side, Cherie Smith from Tom's Guide helped a lot, and so did Chris Bird for the Washington Post. And we created a game room there. That was the school's first. And that was a key to offering young people a place for collegiality and, and for education. And we didn't stop there. We offered them scholarships and paid internships and individual mentoring. And these are really smart kids, and they just need some knowledge and care to grow and thrive. So... What we did there was so successful that the Dreamyard began a separate dedicated game space in the Bronx, the first of its kind there. And 
we were quite proud to be the inspiration for that initiative. And also, as you know, we brought in top people in the industry to tell students about their pathways to success and give them hope, inspiring people like you. And it took it took two years to get you there, but what a success it was. The students there still talk about it to this day. It was very special for me. When I went to DreamYard School, I'd already been thinking about my retirement. I'd already been thinking about what is it that I wanted to do in a post-retirement world, my own desire to give back, you know, the opportunity to go back to literally the neighborhood almost where I was born, the area where I spent the first eight years of my life, a very challenging area, and the opportunity to spend time with these young people and, and essentially to deliver the message that I was you and you can be me is very powerful for me to drive that type of belief and hopefully inspire young people to push on through challenges because life is full of challenges. There'll be a podcast episode when we could talk about life challenges, uh, but life is life is full of challenges. And what you need to do is you need to press forward and you need to have the grit and the perseverance to do that and to share those stories and to hopefully inspire some young people to do that. I've really enjoyed it. As you know, I've been back since. I'll continue to go back and look for other ways to help deliver this message. Well, great. And, and you know, we continue to go up there. We have a program on the Lower East Side as well. Last summer, we began a first-of-its-kind program in New York City. That was uh, at, also at the Dream Yard Project. And it was in this basement space that they had revitalized. And we taught a daily journalism course for 25 students there. And we had really thoughtful panels about toxicity in games, rock star games, who really doesn't make its presence known outside the studio, came up to mentor and stayed for hours. Many of our circle members gave talks. We took them down to CBS on one of our many field trips. Dan Ackerman at CNET showed them the studio and talked about how news shows are made. And Ackerman is great. He just, you know, you let him loose and he will he will go. So this was all part of the New York City Summer Youth Program, which has now been shuttered due to coronavirus. So given that, how has the circle pivoted during this time? Well, in light of that shutdown, we're trying to help by giving more young people contributor and internship status at nygamecritics.com, where we had three, now we have 12. It's a lot more work for our very small staff, but these men and women of color, they're getting paid for their writing work, and seeing their work published gives them a stronger sense of pride. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. How are the sheltering in place rules in New York affecting students from underserved communities now and in the close-in future? Not having summer jobs in the Bronx or Lower East Side will be a blow to so many students. Just as the coronavirus pandemic hit, I heard from Ted Houghton, our board CEO, and Ted mentioned that homeless students in shelters are the students who are hurting the most. I mean, in the, in the best of times, they are living in, in complex situations. So this seven-part podcast is a fundraiser for those students. We want to teach them our writing and journalism courses and offer them game consoles and games so they can think about, you know, the best releases of the day and write about them and their life experiences, too. 
It's called Playing with Purpose. You know, so as you've been doing this, Harold, who are some of the success stories from the work that's been done by The Circle? You know, our first paid intern, Kamari Rennes, she started out as quite shy at the age of, I think, 13. And I remember her showing me artwork, which I liked, but I said it needed work. And she didn't win our scholarship contest that uh, that year, but she came back next year with a determination I have rarely seen in any in someone young or old. She won one of our scholarships and then became a paid intern. Then she won another scholarship. She interviewed some of her game heroes. Her thoughtful writing blossomed. She began to code. She co-hosted podcasts with me. Kamari applied to NYU's Game Center program. I wrote her a glowing letter recommendation, and so did others. And she got a full ride to the program, which she begins in the fall. So that's just one story. And it's it's a wonderful story. I've had the opportunity to meet Kamari, and you know she's fantastic. And you know to hear the story you share and, and how she's blossomed. I mean, that's just... That's such a success story for uh, for the work you've done. You know, what else is The Circle doing regarding this education space? It's an area that I have a lot of personal passion for, and I, I know there's a lot of work that you're championing here as well. So part of the funds of the listeners donate at nygamecritics.com slash Reggie will be used to put our courses online, and that's a big deal for us. These will be very detailed modules with new ideas, for educators and students pretty much every five minutes. We want to put them online for free so that schools around the country and the world can use them. So in that sense, we can grow with the help of others beyond our borders here in New York City. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, I really hope more and more people understand, you know, how the power of video games can be used in areas to help students understand science, technology, math, music and other arts skills, electronics, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. It's a huge area, and I'm thrilled that we'll be able to be pushing forward and making this accessible to more and more educators here in the U.S. The Circle, as one of its major fundraisers, puts on the New York Game Awards each year. I'm sure you've got uh, stories about that. Yeah, yeah. The New York Game Awards is this kind of wondrous event that's also a Trojan horse for our mentoring activities, and we fundraise around it. Writers from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah host the show. They write the show. They create really hilarious videos for the show that takes place on the day after Martin Luther King Day each year. It's really awesome because they they do it for a very small honorarium. It would cost us tens of thousands of dollars otherwise. And our Critics Circle members are the crew. They all pitch in, are this core group of great people. So we put on the show ourselves, just like this podcast. So you've been doing this for so many years. You have to have some behind-the-scenes stories. Reggie, uh, you might be interested to know that when the legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild won Game of the Year, the craftsperson who made the awards made this huge mistake. On the day of the show, he said sent 15 awards for the legend of Zelda and none for other win- other winners. So John Azalona, our designer at Time, frantically searched and pulled in favors for people to redo the awards in a matter of hours. It was utterly tense and utterly brilliant that they arrived within moments of showtime. Wow. I can, I can only imagine what, what that must have been like in the, in the stress of getting the show together. 
you know, one of the things that impressed me, so, you know, I was there this past year, the live music is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've started my career as a music critic, so I do have a great passion for it. We've had great performances over the years, including Wyclef Jean, who premiered a new song for a game, and Tom Clark, who's a Lower East Side legend, and Maddie Rice from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, who was so good she was invited back the following year. And... You know, you find in the audience people like Ronan Farrow, our guests. In the pre-show, our newest interns are interviewed about their writing work and experiences by Jeff Keeley. And Jeff flies in on his own dime for the show. And then we give out a Legend Award, too. You were the recipient this year, Reggie. You put on your tux that night. Can you talk about what it was like to receive the Legend Award? It was just so tremendously touching. You know, this industry has been a key part of my life for these past 15 years. The opportunity to give back through my visits and to spend time with the young people that the circle mentors, and then to be recognized by this group in my home city of New York City, it was a really special time. One of the really fun elements, because it was in New York City, I brought my brother to the event, and it really was the first time for him to see me in this environment. He enjoyed it. He really enjoyed the opportunity. It was was just wonderful to spend time with him in that setting, but more than anything, just to be around some of the young people that the circle has helped in, in such a positive way was really meaningful to me. Well, the interns loved it and enjoyed seeing you. And, you know, you met some of the new ones and everyone at the circle was just so thrilled. So thank you for that night, Reggie. Oh, absolutely. It's a career highlight for me. So it was really special. We want to welcome Henry Love from Gateway Housing to the podcast. Henry, welcome. Glad to be here with you all. I'm very excited about this. Maybe to get started for the listeners, can you tell us just a little bit about your background? Sure. I'm a former educator, taught for a few years in Harlem and in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Led to getting my PhD in developmental psychology. I'm a doctoral candidate at the Grad Center, focusing on homeless adolescents and sort of that transition from adolescence to young adulthood. And I've sort of been working on the project with Gateway called Attendance Matters, approving school attendance for students in uh, shelters in the Bronx and in Brooklyn for the past two years now. We're doing really amazing things and then COVID hit in the middle of March. So now we sort of transition to supporting the providers that we work with on figuring out creative ways to support kids. And whether it's through helping them get books, helping them think about how to help parents structure their days or, you know, getting video games to them and getting some type of virtual sort of interaction in play. Well, Henry, it was was Ted Houghton, who actually is our board CEO, who created Gateway Housing. Can you tell me more on a macro level what Gateway Housing does? Sure. We're sort of a sort of an advocacy group, but also partner with a host of different providers who are on the single adult side and family homelessness side with trying to essentially make people stay while they're in shelter better. So in terms of programming, design, research, you know, families on average are staying in shelter in New York over a year. 
So how do we make that experience not so traumatic, um, but, you know, make it bearable? So whether that is through programs like ours that are trying to really align social services or whether it's through trying to help them get additional after school programs, you know, so we sort of are thinking out of the box and all the ways that we can to try to make things better for kids who are in shelter in New York. You know, it's so incredibly tough right now in this time of COVID, but it's so much tougher for those that are homeless and homeless youth. What are the complex situations that homeless youth and shelters are dealing with right now? Sure. I I just got off the phone a couple hours ago with a, a group of social workers that I work with. And one of the things they've been really struggling with is a lot of the kids are in homes where sometimes mom has had mental health issues or they have mental health or chronic health issues. If they're lucky, they're in a a unit that has multiple rooms, but most don't. Most are like a studio. And, you know, a lot of them have three, four kids, and it's usually a single mom. And I think for them, it's just the fact that they are in a room for extended periods of time with, you know, upwards of three to ten folks in one little room. And so trying to just keep everyone occupied, I think that's sort of the biggest challenge. And, you know, a lot of shelters don't have access to Wi-Fi. They don't have cable. They don't have Internet. So they're, you know... All the things that we think of typically that people are sort of engaging in to keep busy during COVID, they generally don't have. And so that's one of the things that we've been working with with Harold and some of our other partners. How can we figure out how to make a really bad situation? In general, homelessness is always not a good thing. But how do we make it a little bit more bearable with COVID and them not really having access to those things that help them entertain? But like I said, there's you know a host of chronic health issues mental health issues that, you know, are rampant, just complexities of family structure. And that's all just, you know, coupled with COVID now. So how do we really sort of navigate that has been our challenge. Henry, you told us previously that there was a young woman who didn't show up for school for a year. Can you tell us what happened? So when we say school attendance, people are always like, why is that really such an important thing? And it's like, You know, whenever you look at school attendance, if kids are missing school, um, regardless if they're in a wealthy community or poor community, something's going on at home if they're missing a significant amount of school. What we did was we said, you know, we're going to come into these shelters and we're going to focus on school attendance. And let's look at the very top of of these lists, these printouts that we get from the Department of Education, Department of Homeless Services, do a data match. There was one particular young woman who was at the very top. She had like zero. And in the beginning of our meetings, I, you know, was how can this girl who's like 16 how she had zero. And then the shelter staff, they didn't know who she was because they had never seen her. And so we went back and forth and trying to figure out who she was. Eventually, someone was able to get into the unit and form some type of interaction with the family. And they met the young girl and come to find out she had been hospitalized in the psychiatric institution for, I want to say, two, three months. And then she just, you know, never went back to school and she was forgotten about until she sort of resurfaced on our radar looking at the school attendance. And then we determined that she hadn't been to school for over a year, year and a half. And come to find out there was a lot of really deep domestic violence issues with her father and a whole host of really complicated things that had to be worked out um, and through a bunch of different agencies and whatnot. And come to find out she had really, really uh, deep agoraphobia and really was paranoid about meeting and interacting with anyone. And so she would be in a corner and cover her face. Um, And so eventually it got to the point where slowly, slowly through the staff working with her and us focusing on the attendance, uh, she was able to get into the right sort of schooling environment, get the right services. Um, Her parents were able to get the right, her mom was able to get the right services. 
um, and helped her move into supportive housing. And now, you know, they're no longer in shelter. But it was a very long, it took about a year and a half or some change for that to happen. So a lot of these cases are very complex. You know, you're dealing with a lot of folks who've been through DV. They're, you know, recovering from complex trauma. And so there's a lot that is sort of happening already and that was already super complicated. And now that's sort of stuck within the context of, of COVID. So it's how I've been thinking about it sort of, it's like twice sheltered. And so like they've already are like in shelter, but now they have to be like sheltered in place. And like, what does that mean to be sheltered in place when you are homeless? Right. And I think the providers are still trying to figure that out. And Bronx Works has been absolutely phenomenal with really trying to be creative to think about how can we make shelter as sort of engaging as we can, given the, the current situation. You know, on, on one hand, that story is so tragic. And fortunately, it's having a positive turn. It's certainly not over yet, so I can't say positive ending, but certainly a positive turn. And it just reinforces the fantastic work that you and and your team do. Over the next few weeks, the New York Video Game Critics Circle and you will begin to help homeless students in the Bronx with games, game systems uh, that have been donated, Nintendo Switches, that have been loaded with some games. You touched on this, you know, you're talking about a situation with many family members all in the same space. Help the listeners understand how, you know, both on one hand, the opportunity to have a little bit of an escape, plus the opportunity through the video game critic circle to then have these young people write about the games and to get paid for this from an internship standpoint. Talk about how this is going to help those in these situations. As we looked at the attendance data, I think one of the biggest challenges we faced before COVID was that the adolescents, the teens had the worst attendance of anyone, like absolutely abysmal. Like we're talking like the average was maybe like 30% normal attendance, way behind in grades. A lot of them, you know, they started their journey in shelter early on. And so like, you know, they've been in and out of shelter, a lot of them for the majority of their childhood. For us, it was how do we engage them and how do we get them to do writing and to do reading and to, you know, express themselves. And so when Ted said, what about video games? I was like, oh, my God, that's like a brilliant idea. Already there's a bunch of kids from uh, on our side that we've been thinking about in our meetings, thinking about especially the families that we know are, are dealing with more issues and more challenges. How can we support them in all this? And, sorry, my dog, my puppy. <laughs> how can we how can we support them through this? What the social service teams have really done is like they've identified sort of which families they thought were the ones that were in most need, did the sort of research and, and, and communicate with them. And now there's about, you know, at least eight kids who are eager and ready to, to partake in this who really need that outlet. For me, it's, you know, how can we really engage these kids who have been really, who's been struggling as a whole and really bring them into this to be able to hone their skills, especially on writing and reading. Uh, because like I said, so many of them, by the time they get to be 14, 15, 16, you know, they've missed such a significant amount of school that they're often great levels behind. So anything that is getting them to write, that's motivating them to have positive relationships is an incredible thing. And I think that is one of the big predictors for kids who are going through a really traumatic experience like homelessness to be able to come out with resilience on the other side is those positive peer relationships but also with you know mentors as a part of the, the critic circle. I don't know if that answered any of your question. My mind, the dogs start barking. I lost track. <laughs> uh, it's it's quite all right. It's the challenges right of doing these from home. So that's that's great. 
Well, Henry, we can't uh, wait to be mentors and and help out a bit um, on a more macro level, because we'll be working on a micro level. Can you talk about the systematic marginalization that you've seen young people encounter during your career? Yeah, um, I have not seen the complexities that I've seen uh, that I've seen in shelter. And, you know, I've worked in some interesting places. I've I've taught in the West Bank, I've taught in rural Cambodia, and so I've, I've seen the gambit of things, but where you guys will be starting the critic circle, you know, it's a very interesting situation because that particular shelter, they have some of the largest families in New York, and I'm very convinced that the bigger the families are, the more complex the issues are, it often gets intergenerational, and it's everything that can go wrong has sort of gone wrong in terms of the social safety net by the time a family sort of ends up in shelter. Um, and so it's I, it's hard to even articulate the level of marginalization that you sort of see, because it's sort of like you name any type of marginalization, almost at a global scale, because we're in New York, it's sort of reflective there. I mean, one of the biggest surprises for me, I guess, in terms of the marginalization and what I've seen there compared to even in, you know, just working in low income communities and whatnot has been sort of the intersectionality of things. So, for example. I was in a conference and I brought up, you know, the issue about Central American, you know, refugees and and climate refugees and also just like folks from Afghanistan and whatnot. And those people end up in New York shelters. And so it's this thing where it's like something that seems like it's completely not connected is still sort of manifested because New York is a global city. Um, And then it gets sort of funneled in with all these other things with the injustices and the complexities of being undocumented you know, being black in America, access to health care, asthma, chronic health conditions, mental health care, intergenerational trauma, just like everything that you can think of is sort of sort of mixed together in sort of the family shelter, the last place that folks end up. It's amazing. The challenges that you're dealing with every day, the heartbreak and the hardship that these families have that you're helping them through and the work that the circle can do to be a part of that to help in any way really is uh, is just so tremendously gratifying. You know, really want to thank you, Henry, for taking the time to be with us, to share some of this information and to help make it real. We all understand that these things are happening, but to make it real and to help folks understand what's going on and you know, hopefully now to participate through this podcast to help make contributions to help you know solve some of these challenges is really what we're trying to do here. So we can't wait to get started with this initiative. And we really want to thank you for uh, being with us, talking games with Reggie and Harold. Yeah. And, you know, just on just on a, a one last note, though, like whenever, especially at that the shelter that Harold will be doing the program in, it's, you know, people are stressed and challenged. I'm stressed with my dogs and I'm having meetings that are running to me. But I'm like, imagine being a mom with six kids that are all under the age of six or like under the age of 10. And they're, each of them is at a different grade level and you have two infants and you're in a 300 square foot room and you can't go anywhere. And that's a whole nother level of stress and whatnot. And I think... Any way we can figure out to support these families, it's, you know, much appreciated, especially by the families and the providers. We're focused, we're passionate, we're looking to do everything we can, and hopefully the listeners to this podcast will participate in that as well. Right, and we won't give up, Henry. Yes, it's definitely hard work.
Folks, I'd like to introduce you to our senior intern, Kamari Rennes from the Bronx. She has a question for Reggie and one from a person who donated through nygamecritics.com slash Reggie. Hi, my name is Kamari Rennes and I'm a senior intern at the New York Video Game Critics Circle. My question for you, Reggie, is as a person of color coming up in the industry, especially at such high up positions, what struggles did you go through and what did you learn from them? Also, what advice would you give a woman of color? You know, so I've I've been fortunate in my career. I've had only a handful of personal situations that were negative situations that were because of my my race. And none of those situations were at Nintendo. And in fact, you know, Nintendo, a Japanese company, many Japanese executives, but executives from across the world with a with a huge business in Europe. You know, there there's so many executives in Nintendo of Europe that come from a variety of different places. You know, the the burgeoning business that Nintendo of America has in Latin America. So, you know, differences in race were were not an issue. I have to say the bigger issue were differences in perspective or cultural background. And so when I talk about diversity and inclusion, it, you, you really need to think about this from a broad perspective. You know, and how do you, as an individual who has different life experiences and different perspectives, how do you engage with others who similarly have their own different perspectives, different backgrounds? And, you know, for me, I made it a point to learn about others. I encouraged others to learn about me so that we could bridge those differences and in doing achieve magical things. You know, I was able to have conversations with Mr. Wada, for example. But, you know, culturally coming from a different place with a range of different experiences than what I had growing up. But we both valued each other. We valued our perspectives. We valued our differences. And I truly believe that valuing those differences resulted in some magical things for Nintendo. We also have a question from Zachary Hartsman, a high school teacher in the Bronx. Mr. Hartsman asks, how would you advocate to principals and department heads for the presence of video games in schools? So the way that I would go about spending time with educators on this topic and, and you know, candidly, I've, I've done some of this. While at Nintendo, we were taking Labo to schools, that video game product, and spent time with educators and administrators, helping them understand the product and the benefit of these types of interactions in schools. And the message I would deliver is this. First, your kids have a passion for this form of entertainment. It excites them. It gets them to sit up and to listen to your teachers and Anything you can do to engage your students and to get them to participate and be proactive in the learning activity is critically important. So there's power in video games. And second, you know, with the right curriculum, you can handle a range of different topics in ways that really challenge the students and motivate them to do great work. And so, for example, I've seen the power of having students 
for example, write a creative summary on a video game and have to articulate what's the story, who are the protagonists, how does it unfold, and to have not only critical thinking applied to their work, but also then to have the, the eloquence in their writing. And doing it for a video game is the same thing as having it done for a novel or a piece of literature. I have to say one of the key differences is the kids are engaged with the video game. And that's why the video game industry is larger than any other form of entertainment today. It's a way to get the kids engaged. It's a way to teach critical skills, creative writing, critical thinking. In the end, it helps lead to students who are learning. And in the end, isn't that the objective of our educators is to have a situation where our students are learning? That's game over for this episode of Talking Games with Reggie and Harold. We hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, our guest will be Xbox president Phil Spencer, and I'm excited to talk to Phil. This will be the first time I've talked with Phil in a number of months, and it's going to be a very special episode. Yeah, I'm excited too, Reggie. Phil's always a fascinating interview, and he has a lot to say about the new Xbox, the launch, and the games for it. And I know he also has a big surprise for our listeners. Talking Games with Reggie and Harold was produced and edited by Annie Pei. Annie Nguyen is our project manager. John Azalona is our designer. Whitney Mears and Ahmad Khan help with social media. Our music was written by Emmy and Grammy winner Anton Sanko. Stay safe, stay well, play games, and thanks for listening. <laughs>